We're going to verse 32 because there's too much good stuff in this passage, and we'll, we'll get to verse 39 next week. So this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, the calling of Levi the tax collector. We know him as Matthew, uh, same guy, Levi and Matthew. Jesus calls him. So, got your Bibles open? I hope you do. You can follow along with me as we read from the Scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we do ask that you would give us ears to hear as you have spoken very clearly in the scriptures. We, we just sang that song, Speak, O Lord, and we're not asking for you to do anything beyond God giving us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have spoken in, in the Bible, the word of God. We pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit and that you would grow us in the faith, that you would encourage those among us who are discouraged, that you would strengthen those that are weak, that you would save, Father, those who are lost, that you would correct the wayward, that you would break the hard-hearted, and that you would build us up in the faith even now. Father, please keep me from error. Help me to say things that are true and in accordance with the Scriptures and grant all of us, Father, discernment that we would know truth from error and thus grow in the faith. We pray these things, God, confident that you hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask you to consider a question this morning as we begin. The question is this, from the human perspective, what is it that keeps people from following Jesus? From the human perspective, what is it that keeps people from following Jesus? Now, biblically speaking, we know that the answer is the deadness of the human heart. A state so dire and desperate that only divine grace can provide the remedy as the Holy Spirit grants new life to whom He will through the preaching of God's Word. Biblically speaking, the answer is depravity. But depravity takes different forms with different people. And so my question is this, from the human perspective, from what we can see as we observe, what is it that keeps people from following Jesus? Well, there are several answers that we might give, but broadly speaking, I would say most people fall into one of two camps. The first camp is the most obvious. It's those people who say, I'm too bad for God to save me. I've already done too much wrong. We might call this the outcast camp. And its adherents are not hard to spot. It's the person who lives with an unshakable sense of shame, which in turn leads him into more and more destructive patterns of behavior. Or it could be the person who simply doesn't care about standards of morality, the person who simply doesn't care 
what you have to say about religion and has instead decided just to embrace head-on a self-centered life in pursuit of pleasure. Those two people look different, but they both belong to the same camp. We might call it the outcast camp. I'm too far gone for God to save me. There's a second camp, though, that is perhaps even more prevalent, at least in our circles, and it's certainly more sinister if the... If the outcast camp says, I'm too bad for God to save, the second camp says the opposite. I'm already good enough for God to accept me. We might call this the righteous camp, or more accurately, the self-righteous camp. And while its adherents are not as loud in in their refusal of Jesus, you can still spot them. It's the person who consistently points out how bad everyone else is in comparison to himself. Which is, of course, the same as saying, I'm better than that guy. Or it's the person who's very moral, very upstanding, all the while believing that his morality is enough to get him into heaven. You see, these people trust in their own righteousness. And as a result, members of this second camp, who don't look as bad as all of those outcasts, actually end up in the same place. They end up refusing Jesus. And so... Basically speaking, there are these two basic, there are two foundational reasons why people refuse to follow Jesus. I'm too far gone for God to save me, and I'm good enough already for God to accept me. Well, as we come to Luke chapter 5 today, we find Jesus interacting with both camps of people. On the one hand, we see Jesus engaging with those who are considered outcasts, the tax collectors. Like this man Levi in verse 27. And on the other hand, we see Jesus confronting those who are confidently righteous. The Jewish religious leaders. Jesus deals with both camps. But here's one of the keys of the passage, friends. And it's really one of the keys to understanding the gospel. Here in Luke 5, Jesus does not view these people as belonging to two different camps. Outcasts and righteous. No, Jesus only sees one group. Sinners. Who need to be saved. That's really the earth shattering claim. That Jesus is making here in this text. There's only one camp for humanity. The camp of sinner. And both tax collectors and Pharisees. Both outcasts and righteous people. Belong to the same camp. Sinner. And so that means the pressing question for all people everywhere is the one we see played out here in Luke chapter 5. Do we see ourselves in the correct light or the correct camp, we might say? Do we recognize that there's really only one category of people, sinner, and we all belong to it? Do we recognize that the gospel is for those who believe themselves too far gone and for those who believe themselves good enough already? You see, that's the message of this text. Whether you're a tax collector or a Pharisee, and you're probably one of them, I know I am. Whether you're a tax collector or a Pharisee, Luke chapter 5 is telling you that you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And so the issue of this passage really is our response to the Lord Jesus. And as we look at the details here of what Luke gives us, we find that there are two truths about Jesus' ministry that should lead us to respond the right way, whether we're a tax collector or a Pharisee. The first has to do with lordship, and the second truth has to do with Jesus' mission. Lordship and mission. So with an eye toward following Jesus more faithfully, 
and seeing ourselves rightly. Let's consider each of those truths in a bit more detail. Luke begins in verses 27 and 28 by showing us the gracious lordship of Jesus. The gracious lordship of Jesus. Luke gives us very few details regarding the setting for this scene. That's pretty typical in Luke. He likes to shift scenes quickly. But the lack of detail is actually really instructive. As you read the verses, what stands out quite clearly is Jesus' initiative. This isn't a random or accidental encounter with Levi. This is intentional. At Jesus' initiative, the Lord calls a tax collector to be His disciple. Now before we think about Jesus' initiative, we should acknowledge how unexpected this is. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were despised in large part because they worked for the hated Romans. In fact, whenever you see tax collectors uh, in lists of people in the New Testament, they're always listed along with people like Gentiles and prostitutes. Tax collectors are despised. Nobody liked them. Along with that, tax collectors are also corrupt. To put it simply, you could get rich quick by being a tax collector, and it wasn't that hard. If the Romans required a $10 tax, you charged a $15 tax, and you put the $5 in your pocket. And over time, that adds up, which makes being a sellout against your own country a little easier to stomach. Your neighbors may hate you, but at least you're rich. right? So tax collectors are despised, and they're corrupt. So here in verse 27, when Luke tells us that Jesus calls a tax collector, we need to understand how radical this is. We've been kind of conditioned to just breeze past, but this is really radical. A respected teacher would never associate with tax collectors, let alone call one of them to be his disciple. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He calls Levi to follow him. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Jesus doesn't do random. Why is he doing this? Why take this radical step to call such a person to be his disciple? Well, friends, it's because Jesus is teaching us something here foundational about the nature of discipleship. This is easy to overlook, but it's something that we need to slow down and regularly remember. Notice that Levi did not seek Jesus out. It was the other way around. It was Jesus who took the initiative to find Levi. It was Jesus who made the first move towards the despised and corrupt tax collector. And do you know what the Bible calls that initiative, friends? Do you know what Scripture calls the first move that Jesus makes? The Bible calls that grace. Grace. This is the foundational point that we need to be reminded of regularly. Following Jesus does not begin with our move towards Him, but rather with His move towards us. The whole scope of the Gospel, friends, is Jesus moving before you do. He leaves heaven to come to earth. He calls you through the preaching of the gospel. This is true of every single disciple in the history of the church. This is my testimony and yours. The reason we are followers of Jesus today is because He in His grace moved towards us and called us out of the sin and the darkness of our former lives. We were no better than Levi. Sure, we may have looked more respectable on the outside, but we were just as desperate as He was. And yet into that darkness, the Lord Jesus came. And into that darkness, the Lord Jesus called us to himself. It was his initiative that made us his followers. In fact, this is part of the reason why we call him our Lord. Because he is the one who came and got us. 
It was His voice that began our relationship to Him. And it is His voice that now defines our relationship to Him. Friends, this is why it's so important that churches and Christians be built on the Word of God. Because what was it that brought us to God first? The voice of Jesus. Where do I hear the voice of Jesus today? In His Word. The call of Levi here is a reminder that all of discipleship begins with the Lord Jesus taking the initiative to call us. And that initiative, rightly defined, is grace. It's grace. Along with that gracious initiative, there's another aspect of Jesus' lordship that should get our attention here with Levi. Verse 27, Jesus is the Lord who initiates. But then in verse 28, Jesus is the Lord who redefines. He redefines Levi's life. Notice the brief but powerful description of Levi's response in verse 28. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Now you've got to appreciate the cost of Levi's response. Remember, he's making good money. (laughs) And he's got a job that he's probably not going to lose. The Roman Empire has lasted forever, people say. He works for the Romans. He's getting rich. And yet, in an instant, Levi leaves that life behind in order to follow Jesus. There's always a cost, friends, to following Jesus. Levi leaves all of that behind. And understand, this is a total reorientation of Levi's life, and it comes in submission to Jesus. Once Levi walks away, there's no going back to collecting taxes. He can't go back and do it again. There's no going back to the wealth and to the security of the tax booth. And still, Levi immediately lays it all down in order to follow the Lord Jesus, leaving everything. He got up and followed Jesus. You see, this too is foundational for discipleship, friends. To follow Jesus means that He is now the defining center of your life. All of your previous priorities, your job, your identity, your hopes, your interest, all of those Priorities are now defined by Him. To use Levi's life as an example, you can't follow Jesus with one foot in the tax booth and one foot on the road of discipleship. You can't serve two masters, as Jesus Himself will say later in the Gospel. It doesn't work like that. To follow Jesus means that everything now reorients to and around the Lord. You know, several years ago, there was a controversy among Christians over whether or not you could have Jesus as your Savior and not have Him as your Lord. And the Gospels would just say, there's no category for that. You submit to Him in faith, and then you follow Him in faithful obedience. And so, friends, I'll just ask you, is that true of your discipleship today? Are you seeking to submit every aspect of your life to Jesus and to His Word? How you go about your job? your dreams for the future, your daily conduct, your opinions about life and issues in the world, how you spend your money, where you go for entertainment, where you go for comfort, for leisure, what motivates you, how you spend your time. Jesus wants all of that submitted to Him. Not just what we do when it comes to expressly written biblical commands, obviously that, but also what you do on Thursday night when you've got a free hour. What you do when your heart needs to be comforted and encouraged. Where do you go? Jesus wants all of that 
submitted to him. To follow Jesus like Levi means that you obey his word and you live under his authority. Are we doing that? Day in and and, and day out. Are we growing in that way? And listen, I want to be clear. This This kind of allegiance to Christ, this kind of submission to his lordship, does not mean that every Christian has to sell everything today and move overseas in service to the gospel. Disciples display their allegiance in a variety of ways. But at the same time, this kind of allegiance does mean that the heart of every Christian is marked by this willing submission to to Jesus that obeys Him whenever and wherever He calls. Your discipleship road may not lead to the literal ends of the earth, but you should be ready and willing to go there. And so I'll just ask you again, is this true of you and of me? Is this true of us, brothers and sisters, from our thinking to our priorities, from our actions to our values, from how we spend our money to how we spend our time? Are we defining every aspect of our lives in relation to Jesus and to His Word? That's discipleship Levi is teaching us. Now, even as I try to press that home upon us, some of us are going to have to honestly answer no. Some of us are going to have to say no. My Christian life right now is not marked by that kind of submission to Jesus' Lordship. There are areas in my life right now where I know I'm purposefully ignoring Jesus and going my own way. Some of us are going to have to answer like that. That kind of honesty. And here's what I would say to you, if that's you today. I would encourage you to remember the grace that first called you as a disciple. Remember the initiative that the Lord Jesus showed to make you His own. That same grace is at work today just as it was on your first day of being a Christian. And so that means there is forgiveness even for those of us who are going to have to answer no to the question of are we submitting to Jesus as Lord fully and completely like we ought to. There's forgiveness for us. And today can be the day that you repent and respond afresh to reorient your life around the Lord Jesus. So, listen to me. Don't despair if you're a Christian. Despair is not a Christian virtue. Don't despair if you're a Christian. If you're answering no to how am I doing and submitting to the Lord, just own it and take it to Him in confession and then find that same grace that made you a Christian is now keeping you a Christian and helping you to grow. But don't despair. If discipleship is grace from beginning to end, and it is, then that means there's hope even for wayward and stumbling disciples too. And we're all wayward and stumbling on some level. That's the first thing we should note from this passage. It's the gracious lordship of Jesus. But amazingly, the Lord Jesus is not finished with lowly tax collectors. After calling Levi, you'll notice there in the passage that Jesus attends a party thrown by his new disciple. And it's here that Luke gives us the second truth that helps us respond to Jesus. From verses 29 to 32, we should see the merciful mission of Jesus. Not only his gracious lordship, but also the merciful mission of Jesus. As we just noted... Levi throws a party in verse 29. 
I like the idea of throwing parties for people who become followers of Jesus. That's a good idea, I think. We do that already. It's called baptism. Levi throws a party and he invites all of his tax collector friends because that's what you would do. And he also invites the Lord Jesus. Now, this is really instructive, I take it, and I want to I draw this out for us. Following Jesus did not mean that Levi had to get rid of all of his old friends. But it did mean that he had to relate to those old friends in a new way. You see the difference? doesn't mean get rid of all your old friends, but it does mean relate to the old friends in a new way. And so Levi throws this party, which is probably pretty regular for tax collectors. He throws this party, but he also invites the Lord Jesus because he wants his tax collector buddies to know the Savior. So, just as an aside here, just momentarily, this is also part of discipleship. I, I want to be clear on this point. Following Jesus does not mean that we pursue some monastic vision of life that avoids all contact with the world. Rather, following Jesus means we live in the world in a way that makes clear that the world is not our home. And that Jesus is now our Lord. And that's what Levi is doing here in verse 29. He is in the world, but not of the world. This is really key, friends. And it's important that we understand the distinction that Levi is, is illustrating. There is a difference between engaging people in the world and imbibing worldliness ourselves. There's a difference. The one is part of our calling and therefore necessary for us to do, but the other undermines our witness and therefore should be avoided. Or to say it another way, worldliness is a problem. A serious problem. But as Levi is illustrating, you don't have to compromise on worldliness in order to take the gospel into the world. You see, he's in the world, but not of the world. Now, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes, and I hope make some more application on what this looks like, and not surprisingly, it'll come from the Lord Jesus himself. But for now, for now, we're going to, we're going to pause on Levi, and we're going to take note of the religious leaders. You'll notice in verse 30 that it's not the worldly people who get mad at Jesus. It's not the outcasts who have a problem with Jesus, it's the religious people. The Pharisees and the scribes. The religious leaders can't make the distinction that Levi makes. In their minds, you should never get too close to sinners or else they'll make you unclean. And so, the religious leaders take this opportunity to undermine Jesus. Notice verse 30. Notice what they do. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, notice the word that Luke uses in verse 30. The religious leaders grumbled at Jesus' disciples. They're really grumbling at Jesus, but they're still kind of afraid of Him, so they're not going to say anything directly yet. They grumbled at Jesus' disciples. Do you know who else in the Bible is said to have grumbled like this? Israel in the Old Testament. They grumbled. It's the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word. The people of Israel grumbled against God in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Instead of trusting God uh, who delivered them, Israel grumbled against God and even gave in to unbelief. They questioned God. And here in Luke 5, 
That's the same thing we find the religious leaders doing. So Luke is not subtle, is he? Who are the religious leaders like? Well, they're like that generation that died in the wilderness. They're like the wayward, rebellious, unbelieving nation of Israel. So it's not the outcasts who are hardening their hearts. It's the religious people. But then Jesus responds to the grumbling religious leaders and His response reveals both the heart of His mission and also how misguided they are. Notice what Jesus says, verse 31. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, on one level, Jesus' point is straightforward, right? It's not hard to follow Him. Doctors are concerned with people who are ill. Not primarily with people who are healthy. A doctor who only hangs around with healthy people is a strange doctor. He's not really fulfilling his calling. But then in verse 32, Jesus takes that straightforward point and he applies it to his own mission. Notice verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you've got to make that connection from verse 31 to verse 32. Like a doctor who faithfully treats the sick, Jesus has come for sinners. That's His job. If Jesus avoided tax collectors, He would be like the doctor who only hung out with healthy people. It would be strange. He wouldn't be doing His work. He would be hijacking His own mission. This is why Jesus came, to seek and to save those who were lost. Or to use the imagery here, to heal those who are sick. But at the same time, Jesus has also indicted the religious leaders, hasn't He? He's even exposed their hard hearts. This is important, friends. In verse 32, Jesus is not saying that the religious leaders are already righteous and therefore don't need a Savior. Far from it. Jesus is saying that the religious leaders don't understand themselves. That they have failed to see their own need. And that's why they refuse to follow Jesus. A person who doesn't know that they're sick doesn't go see a doctor. In the same way, a person who doesn't know he is a sinner doesn't listen to the good news of a Savior. That's Jesus' point. The religious leaders have the worst kind of spiritual sickness. It's the disease of self-righteousness. They are sick, but they don't know it. In their minds, they don't need a doctor. And that's why they reject the Gospel. Friends, that's the tragic and sobering point that we need to reckon with here. It's, it's not the religious leaders' outward acts of sin that keep them from Jesus. It's their own self-righteousness. They hear the good news and say, no, I'm good. I don't need that. I'm not as bad as those people. And that's why they refuse to come. And so... If you're, if you're here this morning and you're convinced that your good works or your morality are enough to make you right with God, then Jesus has some strong words you need to hear. In humanity's natural state, there are no righteous people in the eyes of God. Let me say that again. In humanity's natural state, there are no righteous people in the eyes of God. There are no healthy people who stand above their need 
for a Savior. In God's economy, there are only sinners who need to be saved. There are only sick and lost souls that need Jesus to seek them out and save them from their sins. Please, don't dismiss the Gospel this morning thinking that you're already good enough on your own. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many sins you have avoided in your life. It doesn't matter how high your standards are compared to all those grimy, gritty, worldly people that you hear about on the internet. It doesn't matter. None of that will save you because you cannot save yourself. And Jesus is warning you today. He's warning all of us that self-righteousness, listen to me, self-righteousness is as dangerous as the most flagrant sin you can imagine. Self-righteous people and idolaters go to hell. Self-righteous people and murderers go to hell. It doesn't matter how many sins you avoid. It doesn't matter how much higher your standards are than others. Jesus is warning you that if you depend upon your own morality in the eyes of God, you have no hope. So on the authority of the Bible, I am pleading with you, do not make the mistake that the religious leaders make here in Luke 5. Do not falsely believe that you are well enough on your own. You're not. There's only one kind of person before God, and that's a sinner who needs to be saved. And I am praying that God would open your eyes and my eyes to see that salvation comes only through Jesus. Now, on the flip side of this, the scene at Levi's house should also remind us of something else. It should also remind us that there are no sinners beyond the reach of the Savior. Praise God. Tax collectors are pretty lousy people. And yet, Jesus seeks out such sinners. There are no people who are so far gone that Christ's grace cannot reach them. That's His mission. To call even the most wayward sinner to Himself. In fact, friends, if you just look at the history of the church, some of Christ's most faithful servants have been those whom He saved out of the darkest sin. The Apostle Paul persecuted the church and even approved of the murder of Christians, but Christ saved him and made him the Apostle to the Gentiles. The renowned theologian Augustine was an outright pagan who loved pleasure so much, he prayed for God to give him self-control, but not yet. Not yet. And yet God saved him. Christ saved him and made him a great servant to the church. John Newton, who penned the wonderful hymn that we all love, Amazing Grace. John Newton was a slave trader, friends. He stole people and sold them into slavery. He lived a debauched life and God saved him. Christ saved him and used him to minister the gospel to many across the world. We're still singing a slave trader songs today. Friends, I'd remind you of these saints not to impress you with, your, with their ministries, but to encourage you that even the vilest sinner can be saved and redeemed through the grace of Jesus Christ. Look, if Jesus can save tax collectors and murderers and pagans and slave traders, then surely Jesus can save you. Surely Jesus can save me. 
And so if you're here today and you're convinced that you're too far gone, and look, some of you may be thinking that. Some of you may have been coming to church your whole life, but with really, really dark things in your past thinking, I would tell somebody, but it's just too bad. No, that's not true. If you've come to church this morning and you're thinking, I'm just too far gone, then Jesus has some strong words that you need to hear too. And they're good words. He came to save sinners just like us. And in His grace, He's calling tax collectors and pagans and immoral people and all kinds of unclean sinners to repent and believe and be saved. So whether it's self-righteousness or outright wickedness, we're all sinners. And what Luke 5 is telling us is that every sinner needs the same thing and His name is Jesus. Well, as we, get, as we get ready to close, I want to go back to that point from earlier that I said about Levi being in the world, but not of the world. Levi left everything to follow Jesus, and at the same time, he threw a party for tax collectors to meet Jesus. That's a picture of our mission, friends. As followers of Christ, we're called to join with the Lord in the mission of proclaiming the good news to the world. And so we have this tension. At least I think it's a tension. It's a tension that will be with us until Jesus returns. On the one hand, we're called to avoid worldliness. That's part of discipleship. And on the other hand, we're called to take the good news into the world. That's also part of discipleship. Don't be worldly. Take the gospel to the world. That's what, that's what Levi's doing. That's the tension here. And so the question that I'm asking today is how do we do this faithfully? That's what I want to end with. How do we do this faithfully? How do we as Christians live in a way that upholds both sides of our calling? Not giving in to worldliness, but also not failing to take the gospel into the world. Well, there's a lot that we could say in answer to that question. But I'm just interested in what this passage says to answer it. So I'm not going to say everything. I'm just going to say what this passage says. And we see here, the essential answer to our question from the Lord Jesus Himself. I want you to look at the Lord Jesus here in the text and notice how Jesus engaged with the tax collectors. Specifically, how He did it. Jesus does two things that I would say many people assume cannot go together. Okay, He does two things. The first is Jesus shows remarkable compassion. Remarkable compassion. This is why we read Isaiah 42. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He shows remarkable compassion. This is clear throughout the passage. He calls Levi. He goes to dinner with tax collectors. And he presumably interacted with them in a respectable, friendly manner. I mean, it's not hard for me to imagine the Lord Jesus talking with some tax collector, asking him about his family, listening to the man's story, perhaps laughing along at something funny that happened just recently. I hope you can envision the Lord Jesus laughing. It's all compassion, in other words. It's all compassion. These people have no business being in His presence. And yet Jesus, with great kindness, gives them His friendship. So that's the first thing Jesus does. He interacts with these worldly people with great compassion. The second thing is just as important. Jesus also shows remarkable clarity. He shows remarkable clarity. Notice the end of verse 32. Why has Jesus come? 
not to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance. To repentance. You see, Jesus was clear. He was clear. Sin is serious. And therefore, sinners like us need to repent. Tax collectors need to turn away from swindling. To laugh at something funny. But at some point in that conversation, you can almost hear Jesus saying, you know, friend, there's a better way to live than what you're chasing after. You got all this money, but money won't last forever. In fact, money really doesn't mean much in God's eyes. God's standard is perfection, and the reality is you can't buy God off. All your money can't erase your sin. There's only one way to know the living God, and it's through the mercy and the grace that He provides. And that means, friend, that you've got to lay down your sinful ways. Right now, today, friend, you've got to repent and turn from sin in order to trust in the grace that only God gives. It's not hard for me to hear Jesus having that kind of conversation at a tax collector party. And so catch what the Lord Jesus has done. He's done two things that I'm convinced most Christians don't think you can do together. He has shown compassion and he's been clear at the same time. That is very instructive, brothers and sisters. In fact, I would say that it's the essential starting place for us to be faithful in the world. We show compassion and we speak clearly. We compassionately welcome and engage with all those whom God brings across our paths and we speak clearly and without apology the things that God has said are true. Those two actions are not at odds. And we shouldn't use them to undermine the one while claiming to uphold the other. That's not being clever. That's just being immature. Being compassionate does not give us a license to distort or deny God's Word. And being clear does not give us permission to be harsh or cruel or unkind. Now, does this mean that everyone will like us? No, of course not. Does this mixture of compassion and clarity mean that we won't face opposition? Not in the least. But it will help us, brothers and sisters, it will help us walk in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, even in the way that He walked. Let me tell you a story. I knew a man once who gave himself to flagrant and pretty outwardly awful sin. He gave himself over to a life of homosexuality. I know this man because he was my uncle. And when he went to get help from a trusted spiritual advisor, they gave him really bad counsel, essentially saying, you're too far gone to be saved. And so he left, and he moved to a different city and denied the faith and gave in to a sinful lifestyle. Nobody really wanted to associate with him. But my dad would often take business trips to that city where my uncle lived. And every time my dad would go on his business trips, he would have dinner with him. Right? He would have dinner with him, and he would just remind my uncle of the things that are true. We love you care about you, but we also want you to know that there's a better way to live. And if, if you've met my dad, he, he's a pretty typical Arkansas guy, right? He can be rough around the edges, but he shared the meal with my uncle, and he was clear at the same time. 
Understand, not many people would associate with him at this point. Not many people would spend time with him. Very simple, shared a meal, reminded him of the things that are true. Over a decade of time passed, and lots of really horrible things happened uh, to my uncle. And in the Lord's mysterious and merciful providence, God granted him repentance. (laughs) God granted him repentance. And do you know who was there at the front of the line to help him move back home and die with dignity was, was my dad. Now, I tell you that not to applaud my, my dad, though I think he's pretty awesome. I tell you that to say you can do both. You can be compassionate and you can be clear at the same time because that's how the Lord Jesus lived. And when we live that way, friends, God does remarkable things. According to his will and according to his timing, he does remarkable things in order to see sinners saved. We should never say that we're going to be compassionate in order to undermine being clear. And we should never say, I'm going to be clear in order to undermine being compassionate. We walk the way that Jesus walked, or to use the Apostle Paul's language, we speak the truth in love. And so, that wasn't in my notes. I'm sorry for going long. I'm praying that our church would model this kind of witness. And I'm praying that this would be just part and parcel of what it means to be a member at Midtown Baptist Church and that we would faithfully follow the Lord in this way, that we would submit to His gracious Lordship over us and that we would devote ourselves to the merciful mission that saved us and we would do all of that in the way that the Lord Jesus did with compassion, going to those who are lost, and with clarity, telling them that there is grace to save them just as there was grace to save us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.